0: He'll be preaching on 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you do have a Bible, you can open it and keep it open to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkahana, the son of Jer- Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly, distressed prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly she made a vow and said o Lord of hosts if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant but will give your maidservant a son then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head father we thank you for your word we pray now for Uh, Your word to go out to uh, all the community, Lord, all of us hearing today through the preaching. We pray for Robert, that you would anoint him by your Holy Spirit. We pray for ourselves, Lord, that we would hear, uh, take to heart what is preached and obey you. Amen. Good morning, everyone.
1: I think it's safe to say that there are tipping points in life moments that changed the trajectory of, of human history. For example, we know the Great Depression in the 1930s changed how people looked at hard times. World War II versus Vietnam, one war unified the nation, the other tore it apart. Watergate, the great scandal in the 1970s, changed how we trusted our government. 9-11 impacted security and privacy, and now we're on the aftermath of COVID-19, and those changes are still working themselves out, but we can be sure they're gonna leave a mark on healthcare, business, family, and even church. Life is difficult. Life can sometimes feel like you're stuck in this cycle of either being in a battle, coming out of a battle, or preparing for that next battle. And to get off this sort of hamster wheel, we, we find ourselves searching for these tipping points, These moments in time or these events in in our life that will change us deeply, create stronger, deeper, and hopefully a different view of God. Because every trial, challenge, or or suffering, you know, there has to be something there. There has to be something there that we can learn about the Lord. Uh, A promise for every pain. Something to cling to that's going to set a new course and direction. And I call this just one part of exercising godliness. So this morning, I'd like to look at a person that I really turn to often. I, I love Hannah, and I think she's somebody that exemplifies this sort of tipping point in human history. And when we begin to understand Hannah's situation and circumstances, we recognize quickly that uh, there's very, very little she could have done about her situation. She was in a very difficult space, and yet her example is one of the great, biblical examples of faith, tremendous faith that changed her trajectory. So 1 Samuel begins with some simple facts, as Tim read. There was a certain man, his name was Elkanah, and he had two wives, Hannah and Penina. As we begin this story, I think it's really easy to get lulled into, into thinking, well, this is merely a narrative of a new book because we really don't see the larger scope and, and the history by just opening First Samuel. The beginning of 1 Samuel was one of the lowest points in Israel's history. At the close of the book of Judges, Israel was literally coming apart at the seams. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the people were very, very unfaithful. It was a difficult time, there was a lot of hardship, and the people were making terrible, terrible choices. So God drops this story, a historical event, into the low point of Israel's history, really to, to change the trajectory of human history. And it's a story meant to help us, encourage us in our faith, and walk with the Lord. Now we learn a very obvious truth in the scriptures right away about Hannah. We, we learn we never overcome our troubles by simply ignoring them. And we looked at that last month when we were in Colossians 3. But the point is, one way or another— we are going to have to address our problems. So let's take a look at Hannah. Verse 1 tells us there was a certain man, perhaps someone of no social status or influence, but when we look a little bit deeper at Elkanah, we discover that he was a Levite, according to 1 chapter 6. He was a Levitical priest. So he was a person of some importance. When Joshua led the Israelites into the Promised Land, all the tribes received an inheritance of the land. But the tribe of Levi, their inheritance was the presence of God. I can't think of a more wonderful inheritance than the presence of God. And they were raised to believe that. And Elkanah was a faithful man. Verse 3 tells us, year after year, he went up to Shiloh, the center of worship, to worship the Lord during a time of depravity and decay. He was a faithful man during a time when others were not put the Lord first. And then one day he fell in love. He met a woman named Hannah. And Hannah's name means favor. So when you look at these two at first glance, what an ideal situation in marriage. A man named Elkanah, who's a Levite, whose inheritance is God's presence, marries a woman named Favor. Just think of the marital blessings on this couple and think what people spoke about this couple and the potential hope that they had coming to their life. All kinds of blessings were coming their way, right? But that's right where the problem begins because things don't always go according to how we plan them out. That's a key lesson we have to learn in life. I can remember mapping out my life at 13, 14, and 15. I had everything set up Marriage here, college here, kids here, and not one of those dates worked out according to how I wanted to. And the same is true for Elkanah and Hannah. Despite their names and their faithfulness, it appeared that God's favor was not finding them. Hannah at this point could not have any children, and it was an absolute disgrace in that culture. How wonderful it would have been if she could just have a child, a son, The joy it would have brought her. Instead, it brought her disgrace over and over again, being reminded that she could not have children. Now, you can only imagine what Elkanah and Hannah thought, right? How can this be? We're being faithful. We're serving God. We're living right. Why is it that things are not unfolding as they should? And I think we get into that headspace all the time. As we grow in our lives, we have to contend with trouble. We have to contend with Deep disappointments. You long for one thing and end up with another. And then sometimes life gets even worse and deeper disappointments come. And that's exactly what happened for Hannah. Of course, Elkanah and Hannah could have just continued in faith and trusted God to provide children, but instead, Elkanah chooses a cultural option and he chooses to marry Paniah as his second wife. And Peninnah was fruitful and had many children. So I guess you could say, looking in, that for Panaya, life was great, filled with joy, but for Hannah, it just remained hurt and pain and disgrace. And it's at this point, when these things happen to us, as they're happening to Hannah, we have to answer the question, how am I going to manage this difficulty, this pain? We never overcome the battles with just ignoring them. We have to hit them head on. So let's take a look at a few of the battles that Hannah faced and how she approached them. Battle number one that Hannah faced was the battle simply to stay faithful. How can I stay faithful when things are not going the way I want them to go? Now, one author noted that this challenge of, of faithfulness is, 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 is really about strings being attached to our walk. If I'm faithful in my church attendance, if I'm faithful in my service to the kingdom, if I'm faithful to giving and so on, then eventually things are going to unfold for me in my favor. Faithfulness then, in this idea, is some sort of way of earning what I want to achieve, what I want God to do for me. And it's almost as if we feel that we can manipulate God to bend our way in our faithfulness. Year after year... Elkanah and Hannah went up to Shiloh and worshipped faithfully. And alongside them were two unfaithful priests and their father. Hophni and Phinehas, two of the most corrupt priests, are attending to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is a story of irony. Now, we know God's going to deal with Hophni and Phinehas in time, but for now, Elkanah and Hannah are, are right next to them, year by year watching them be blessed in their corruptness and evil. Elkanah and Hannah's lives stood out. They were faithful. They were winning this battle. And yet God's favor was not resting upon them with children. And in our journey, when things don't go our way, I promise you, you will be tempted to become less faithful. You'll be tempted not to join worship or to read God's word, to avoid spending time in prayer, to avoid serving and giving of resources. You will be, you'll be tempted to do all these things. If you're not already, you're going to face, face this battle of faithfulness. And Hannah certainly did. And here's how she worked through this battle. It starts with love and passion. You know, falling in love, we know, is a tipping point in our life. It's going to change the trajectory of our path. And this is why God's commands and structure for marriage are so concrete in the Bible. Now, if we wanna change God's plans and his hopes for our marriage, all we need to do is go against his design command. That's it. And many of us have felt that pain in small ways over petty things in our marriages, and others in more significant, more destructive ways, for sure. But Hannah started with a right relationship with her husband. The two had become one. She married a man who loved the Lord. It's hard to stay faithful when you're isolated, when you're going at things alone. Look at Jonah. Look at David. as just two examples in the scriptures. We know the old saying, behind every su- successful man stands a strong woman. And Before you say anything, I know that's politically charged. I'm not going to touch that statement, but that's the old statement. But I'm going to tell you one thing, and I'm not going to apologize for this. Young men, if you're looking for a young woman to marry, and you want her to be a godly woman, a godly mother, then you better be a godly man and a godly husband. That is the soil by which the two together grow and make it work. Isolation can be really dangerous. So as the two were now one, Hannah and Elkanah had the right relationship with worship, They went up year by year to the city and and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. They shared the right relationship with love. Elkanah loved Hannah. Hannah loved Elkanah. If you want to capture that in one word, it's just passion. They had passion for the Lord. They had passion for each other. If I could give you three things that I promise you will change the trajectory of your marriage, it is this. Worship together, pray together, and study God's word together. In this battle over faithfulness, Hannah married a man who worshiped the Lord. They shared that passionate worship to the Lord their God. They shared love for each other, and they were armed for this battle of faithfulness. So when heartbreak and setback came, Hannah didn't need to blame others or to wither in despair. Instead, she focused her passion and her zeal on God as her first priority. It's really no surprise to us when we face battles of faithfulness. We tend to look in and look up. We know that. But the battle for faithfulness always began by seeking God, things of God, with this passion and zeal. And if you study Hannah closely, you're going to see a woman who had great passion and great zeal for God. Battle number two that Hannah faced was this battle with compounding disappointment. Verse 4 and 5 reads, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now we can read this and say, oh, how sweet. He loved her and he gave her more. But look at it from Hannah's perspective. Hannah had to watch Paniah receive her portion, then each of her children's portions, over and over and over again. This should have been a day of celebration, but I think it was a constant reminder of her consolation prize. And she watched Panaya being blessed, this ritual over and over. It was just continual, compounding disappointment of not having children. That's a really hard place to be, to see others blessed and you are not. When you see others' hopes and dreams being fulfilled and you're left out, it's a challenge. That's a real battle. It's a moment of heartbreak. And so we have to learn how to navigate in that space. And Hannah won this battle simply with patient faith. She wanted a child for a really, really long time. And I think as a believer, one thing I've constantly had difficulty with is this whole concept, this idea of perseverance in waiting. I think God is, is after that when we are praying for things we are not receiving, we are not getting answered. Perseverance and waiting. So it's good to ask, what is God trying to do in me through my waiting? Is he trying to help me understand that I really don't need what I've been praying for? Is he trying to get me to understand I should be content in the things that I already have? We know that faith isn't natural to us. Sin is, rebellion is, unbelief is far more natural. So the miraculous thing here in waiting, this perseverance of waiting is that God will somehow use our waiting as a means to grow our faith, to see Jesus more clearly, to want Jesus more through our waiting, and to crave more of Jesus in all of our senses. Now we're all waiting for Jesus to return. So, in the meantime, as we wait, we keep trusting, we keep believing, we keep reading scripture to remind ourselves of what God has said, what God has done, and what God will do. This will always realign the trajectory of our lives to his will and to his plans. Isolation is dangerous, it doesn't work. So we keep surrounding ourselves with other believers who can remind us of the truth when we don't wanna believe it. We keep praying, we keep believing. That's where godliness grows. I, I have been praying That the churches, our church, small groups, will continue to grow or will grow once again. I I really, I I know, I understand there are important reasons why people uh, don't feel safe in large, close crowds. I get that. But we still need each other. We need each other. We need to be in fellowship. We need to worship alongside each other. If you think about it, we're trying so hard to hold on sometimes. Life can be so challenging. But in holding on, God is doing all that he has to do to keep us close to him and all to himself. Hannah faced this battle, compounding disappointments, but she faced it with great, patient faith. She continued to be with her husband, love her husband, worship alongside her husband, and, and instead of succumbing to the problems of, or playing that sort of, why me, why me, She continued to love God, trust God, and pursue God with patient faith. The third battle I think Hannah is facing here is attack and judgment from others. And we know what that is. It's the attack of what people think, feel, or post about us. Verse 6 and 7, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and could not eat. The word rival in Hebrew means a trouble. And Paniah was a trouble. We know that there are times in our life when we are down at difficult points. Some people will rejoice in our suffering. They will be glad that we have failed. Now, why? Why do people act like this? Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's hatred. Maybe it's competition. It's certainly sin. It could just be that as we go down and, and fail, it elevates their standing in some way. Yeah, I wonder if Paniah knew that Elkanah deeply loved Hannah. Nevertheless, we are gonna meet people, colleagues, family, who will intentionally say things to make us feel worse, upset us, make us feel a little bit lower. This is why holidays can be so difficult for so many. It's an awful place to be. And Hannah found herself right in that place with Panaya, year after year after year, provoking after provoking. And then there's gonna be those conversations attack and judgment from other people. When people mean well, they really mean well, but their words just are just not helpful at all. And wouldn't you know, Elkanah here is, is going to be that person. In verse 9, he says, Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And the answer is No. Despite the fact that you love me, Alkana, care for me, show me favor to me, my life is a disgrace, she's probably screaming. It will never leave me until I have children. And she feels this way all day, every day. Not because she just personally feels this way, but because the culture says it and reminds her of it over and over. It's true. She's feeling it. She's living it. We've lived it in this life you will have trouble. Every one of us, every season of life. How do we navigate through this battle? How did Hannah prevail through this attack and judgment from others? Hannah turned to praise. First, she turned to passion for God. Second, she used patient faith. Now her godly character is going to be seen in the way she praises God. In chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, She prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside thee. Neither is any rock like our God. Don't talk to me anymore proudly. Don't let arrogance come out of your mouth for the Lord is God. And this continues all through verse 10, she praises God. And it sounds very much like what you're going to read in Luke chapter 1 from another young woman facing trouble and ridicule and doubt. And she cried out, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And of course, that was Mary, the mother of Jesus. You see, it's, it's hard to hear judgment and criticism and attack and ridicule and doubt from others when you are filled with praise. Praise has a way of putting judgment and attack right in its place. It, it is the, the noise-canceling technique from God. Praise him, and we will not hear the judgment and attacks. So, so far, Hannah has fought these battles. These have been difficult battles. She's faced difficulty and pain. She's used passion, love, zeal, patience, and praise. But here comes the the cataclysmic shift and change in trajectory for all history in her life. Hannah realized something. Now, I certainly don't know exactly what she was thinking, but I, I do know she was distressed. Maybe she began to see her trouble as a tool rather than a curse or an unjust weight around her neck, or her troubles didn't need to be grieved, maybe she's realizing they could be used. And so Hannah, despite receiving, not receiving what she prayed for, just kept praying as far as we know. And then she went into the temple, she prayed to God again, and she let out her vexation to the Lord. The Bible said when she walked from that temple her face was no longer sad. Tim read that for us. And that's not something I've focused on before when I've looked at Hannah. and it's, it's pretty intriguing. Why? Why did she walk out of the temple and now she was no longer sad? Her, her prayer had not been answered yet. Was it the prayer in particular? When she asked God to give her a son? Perhaps it was that very interesting part of her prayer where she said, Lord, I will give the Son back to you. I think a lot of times when we're praying for things, we have no intention, no focus, no thought of giving anything back to God. Instead, it's a very one-sided, and then we've all been there. And scary plane rides going down, turbulence, we're praying to God. That plane lands, we're like, cool, I'm off. And you just fail to even thank God for the answer to a nice, safe landing. We've all been in those situations where we forgot to acknowledge what God has done. I wonder if Hannah's heart had changed in such a way where everything that she was going to receive from God or wanted to receive from God or prayed to for God... She only wanted it for his glory. I wonder if that was the shift. Perhaps that's what changed her heart to where she walked away and she was no longer uh, sad, even though the prayer wasn't answered. Now, you have to appreciate the writer here in 1 Samuel who captures the lowness and the grief in Hannah's situation. Verse 9 and 10 reads, And Hannah stood up, and in bitterness of soul wept and prayed to the Lord. What does it look like when we bring our troubles to God, when we allow our troubles to be the absolute fuel for our prayer life? I think it looks something like this. There was deep emotion involved here. Uh, She was in a mental state of anguish, so much so that Eli thought she was drunk. She was literally opening her heart to God. Verse 13 reads, Hannah was speaking in her heart only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. This is a woman pouring out pain and heartbreak to God, standing right there before God, facing her pain. We have to believe, we, we know this, that the scriptures, that God indeed wants us to use our troubles to draw near to him, to approach him. I don't read in the scriptures that we're supposed to grumble and complain or run from God. Tim opened the service with... Uh, Psalm 18, and and prior to the part that Tim read, that psalmist wrote, in my distress, I called out to God. Calling out to God, then later being able to stand, and this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. But first, what preceded us, this psalmist, in my distress, I called out to God. So where where is the, the treasure here? If, if we are to rejoice in our trials, what, what did Hannah learn? Well, I think it's this. When we face God as Hannah did, when we cry out to him, he will bring us to a different place. Our trajectory will change. Now, we understand this. We only sometimes pray halfway. We pray for God to answer our prayers, but not beyond it. Lord, answer my prayers. Hear me, Lord. And we often pray to possess the very thing that God already wants to give us. Lord, deliver me from this situation. Provide for my needs. Heal my infliction. Give me strength, peace, patience, and so on. Turn my husband's heart. Set my son's path straight. And, of course, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with praying for those things. But we learn from Hannah to pray beyond the answer to our prayers. And this changes the trajectory and path of how we view God. How we view God affects how we're going to live. And our prayer, how we pray, absolutely reflects how we see God. It is a window into absolutely how we see and understand and trust the Lord's work and promises for our life. If we can get to the place where Hannah landed, then prayer will be moved from, Lord, rescue me, to, Lord, restore me, to, Lord, use me for your glory. And that's where Hannah landed. She learned that everything belongs to God, her pain, her trouble, even the answers to her prayers. And when we can see that God truly possesses the answers to our prayers, then the things that he blesses us with, our jobs, our work, our income, they don't belong to us anymore. They belong to God. And when we get to that place, we're much more likely to give generously with joy. If I feel like everything that God's blessed me with is mine, I'm going to hold on tight to it. When we see that our children, really, they don't belong to us, They belong to God. And we give them back to the Lord. Then it's he alone who writes their testimony. Without my meddling, my feelings, my pride, my personal interests, or even my dreams. They belong to God. I want to be really excited and proud when my kids do great things. And that puffs me up. But I can't do that. That's all God. But the good thing is when they mess up, that's all of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, Hannah could have just prayed for a child. We know that. Oh, give me a child, Lord. Give me a child in this difficult time. Give me a child. Instead, she cried out to God and surrendered her pain, her sorrow, her fear, her troubles, and even the answers to her prayer all back to God. She makes this great vow in verse 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. I know, we're going to say, oh, so big deal. She's surrendering her answers back to God. But in God's larger view, her prayer, her willingness to surrender her troubles— the answers of those prayers, it shifts the entire nation of Israel. Because the son that's going to be born, of course, is Samuel. And the name Samuel means "heard of God. Samuel's going to be the final judge of Israel. He is the tipping point in their history. He is the bridge piece from the lowest point of Israel's history to the mountaintop. He will be the prophet who calls out the shepherd boy David, who will be Israel's greatest king, whose descendant will be the Messiah. Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord, but she was also dedicated to taking care of Samuel, to change his growth and trajectory to serve the Lord. 1 Samuel 2.19, it's this wonderful wonderful statement that we have in the scriptures. It says, moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when he came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Hannah said, I give him to you, Lord. But she didn't actually give him away. The Scriptures tell us year by year, he grew a little bit. She made him a coat. She was right there, key in his growth His preparations to serve the Lord. As we read on in Samuel, here's just three verses that we can just pull out very quickly about his life. The child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and with men. And the child Samuel ministered to the Lord from a very young age. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did not let any of his words fall to the ground. All of Israel knew Samuel was established to be the prophet of the Lord. And I think it began with Hannah's prayer. Now I'll close with this. The Holy Spirit does something very interesting in this passage. The Word of God right here, and we've got it on the screen, is constantly speaking of Samuel as an answer to Hannah's prayer. What sort of splattered throughout this text are two other children, We spoke of them before. Tim read about them, Hophni and Phinehas. But guess what? We never hear the name of their mother, ever. Chapter 2, verse 12 reads, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, wicked men, and they knew not the Lord. So we have Hophni and Phinehas right in the midst of all these wonderful words of Samuel but nothing mentioned about their mother. Their father neglected them. The Bible says Eli did not admonish his children. Nobody raised them. They raised themselves. And they came out, the Bible says, worthless. They hated the whole idea of offering to God, and they were Levitical priests. They had sexual relationships with women at the door of the temple. They were vile, evil men woven through. And it gets worse if you can believe that. God warns Eli that his sons are going to die, and the Lord indeed takes them out. The Ark of the Covenant is stolen, and when Eli hears this news, he falls off his seat backwards by the side of the gate and broke his neck and died. And it gets worse when Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, who was pregnant, heard all this news. While giving birth, she died And named the son Ichabod, which means the glory is departed. That's an ugly story. That is an ugly story. A different trajectory woven between the words about Samuel. There is no woman like Hannah in all the Bible. What unbelievable faith and strength. She faced tremendous difficulty, disgrace, and heartbreak. But she took a different path. And I think she embodies Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith was Hannah's battle cry. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. She moved from, Lord, rescue me, to Lord, restore me, to Lord, use me for your glory. Hebrews eleven six 6 ends with, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hannah gave her answered prayer back to the Lord and trusted the Lord and all the blessings and great rewards that would come one day through her son Samuel. Hannah was Israel's tipping point for God to move and deliver his precious promises. A new and living hope that one day, would bring our Savior and our King. Amen. Lord God, we we just love and thank you for your precious word. We thank you, Lord, how you drop historical accounts in the middle of the Bible that can encourage our faith. Lord, we want to be encouraged by what we read, by truth and godliness, that we can follow you, Lord, that you're faithful, you're trustworthy, and your promises will come true. Use us, Lord. Use us for your glory and your honor for all the days of our life. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Now, brethren and sisters, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.